Good morning. Well, this is uh, one of those messages where you're going to have to put your seat backs and tray tables in the full upright position and <clears throat> your seat belts buckled. we we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, I love it when Rick reads because he's a product of the 70s like I am, so he reads from the New American Standard Version, which <laughs> which I grew up with. Um, we do have a lot of ground to cover, and I'll tell you right now that in the last few weeks, I've worked really hard to finish early, but I'm not going to today. Okay. In the first two weeks of this study, as we examined the Abrahamic covenant, we saw that the way we come to be heirs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the gracious promises that God made to them is by sharing the faith of Abraham. Jesus said, it was read this morning, John 8, 58, uh, just before John 8, 58, he said, Abraham, your father, speaking to the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, your father Abraham looked forward to the coming of my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. I don't know how that works, but I think that's amazing. And then he said, before Abraham was, I am. We must share the faith of Abraham. We must believe the promise of God, and then God reckons our faith to us as righteousness. It's the only way that we become heirs to the covenant. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ alone. Last week we saw that the Mosaic covenant, which we also call the law of Moses, was never intended to be a comprehensive set of rules that would make Israel righteous if they diligently kept it to the letter. In Romans 9, verses 30 through 33, Paul says this about how the Jews missed the point of the law. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Literally, if you take the, the, added words out in the Greek, it's because not by faith, but as though by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The law was principle by example. The commandments in God's law were intended to show us God's character and how his character works itself out in our relationships with him and with others. We saw that Israel missed the point of the law, treating it as a checklist, as if by keeping the letter they could make themselves righteous and acceptable in the eyes of a holy God. The religious leaders in Israel, as we saw, added sub-commandments and clarifications to virtually every law that was presented in the Torah, yet they could never arrive at a list that was so thorough as to cover every situation in life. We said last week that the purpose of God's law is threefold and that the very first purpose subsumes the others. It's the one on which the others completely derive. First, the purpose of God's law is to show us his character and how his character works itself out in our relationship with him and with others. Secondly, in light of that which the law reveals about his character, our character becomes manifest. And that turns out not to be good news. The third purpose of the law is to show us that God is the one who must bridge the infinite gap between his character and ours. Last week we focused on the first of those three. This week we'll focus on the second and third we'll see that the law shows our character to be fatally flawed. And it shows us very decisively that unless God takes care of the infinite disparity between that which his character requires and that which we're able to deliver, we will all be lost forever. Here's where we're going. We're going to see first that the standard presented to us in God's law is an absolute standard and it is indeed God's own righteousness. We're going to see that God's law condemns all of us and leaves us it leaves every mouth closed and every man accountable to him. And we're going to see how that plays out starting from the fall 
to the period between the fall and Moses. And we're going to see it in the law. We're going to see it magnified by the law. And then we're going to see after the giving of the law that we are told in advance how utterly we will fail to keep the commandments of God. And then finally, we'll see that our guilt is confirmed in the New Testament, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'll see that law can never make men righteous. And then we'll see how, in a marvelous way, God nonetheless fulfills the requirement of the law. Lastly, we'll see that there's a major plot twist uh, with the Mosaic Covenant. All right, we're going to start with the absolute standard of God's law which is God's own righteousness. And we, we got a good taste of this last week. We saw that in Leviticus 19.2, God said to his people, Therefore you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. We saw that throughout the Old Testament, God's own character is the basis for each of his commandments to his people. He tells them to be compassionate because he's compassionate. He tells them to be just because he's just. Everything that he says to his people is based on who he is, everything that he requires. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus presents the multitudes with that exact same standard. He says in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless until heaven and earth shall pass away, Not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that was big news to the people who were listening to him speak. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the ones who were perceived by the people to have been blessed by God and placed in positions of great authority and even given riches because they were righteous in reference to the law. But having just told the multitudes in Jerusalem that the religious leaders whom they considered to be the most righteous men of their age lacked sufficient righteousness to enter into his kingdom, Jesus goes on to explain what kind of righteousness is acceptable to God. And every word that Jesus speaks in the remainder of Matthew 5 makes it infinitely clear that the standard that God requires is his own character. The leaders of his day thought that the bar, the standard by which they were measured by God, was down here where they could reach it. But God made it clear through Jesus Christ that the bar had never been down here. It was always up there where God is because the standard of righteousness required by God is his righteousness. The Jews' entire approach to the law was based on a grievous failure to honestly admit what the law shows about our incurable unholiness. And Jesus' words shattered that illusion, whether they got it or not. Matthew 5.48, Jesus gives us his conclusion to his argument about what kind of righteousness is required by God. And he puts it very simply. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If anyone waters that down, they miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the requirement of God's law is a perfect requirement. It's his own character. Therefore, his law condemns us, all of us. It leaves us with every mouth closed and every man accountable to God. We see this from every angle in the Bible's presentation regarding the law. Everything from Adam to Moses uh, shows this and, and actually sets the stage for the giving of the law. 
we're going to kind of track through this and, and, uh, and cover a bunch of history in a short period of time. First, I want to say, it is no accident that Moses, the same man through whom God delivered his law to the people of Israel, is the, is the man through whom he also presented to them the record of the fall of mankind in Adam and Eve. And through whom he, he presented all of the history of Israel leading up to the giving of the law. It's impossible to properly understand the law of Moses without understanding that it is presented against the backdrop of the curse that God imposed upon all mankind because of the sin of Adam and against the backdrop of the unfolding of that curse in every generation of God's people after the fall and of of all mankind. Genesis 3, of course, you're familiar with it. It reveals the first and foundational sin of man who preferred his own version of reality to that which had been declared by God. And man rejected the word of God, and he put himself in God's place, seeking to be like God, knowing good from evil. That same chapter, Genesis 3, presents the stark transformation that occurred in the character of man as a result of sin. Man who, having once stood naked and unashamed, clean in the sight of God, now sought in fear to hide himself, to hide the nakedness of his fallen character from a holy God who could not look upon his unholiness. Genesis 3 presents the universal curse of the fall, the curse of death, which God imposed on all mankind beginning with Adam. And it presents the very first sacrifice in which God himself took the life of an animal to cover the now shameful nakedness of Adam and Eve. After the law, and leading up to the law, our guilt is demonstrated again in living color. Before Moses records the presentation of God's law in Exodus chapter 20, he first tracks the story of mankind's repeated failures to respond either to the grace of God or to the judgment of God. He records in Genesis 4 the first death. Not a natural death, but a death by murder of Cain against his brother Abel. He records the spread of sin to all men until in chapter 6, verse 5, God says that he looked upon the earth and he saw that every thought of, every thought of man's heart, every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. So God judges mankind in a universal flood that destroys all flesh that dwells upon the earth. Moses then records the sin that immediately followed the preservation of a remnant through that flood. As soon as Noah and his sons get off the boat, we see a grievous sin. A sin that results in a further curse. We then see at Babel the hubris the arrogant high-handedness of a united mankind who believed themselves somehow to be masters of a world of their own making. Moses speaks of how God confused their languages and scattered them abroad across the earth to humble them in the sight of God. And as we saw in the first two messages of this series, Moses then speaks of God's work starting in chapter 11 to call out one man, Abraham through whom he promised to create a people for his own possession, to bless them and to give them a place in which he would dwell in their midst as their God. But he records time and time again the sins of the patriarchs, who, if it were up to them, would have put the covenant promises so at risk that they would have been undone. And he continues to speak, though, of God's relentless faithfulness to honor the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their seed, singular. A faithfulness by which he created faith in the hearts of men who seemed always to gravitate toward faithlessness. 
Moses then speaks of 400 years of Israel's harsh bondage in Egypt. As God brought them through what he called the refiner's furnace. And he records the incomparable miracles by which God delivered them from that bondage. As victors over the most powerful army of that era. And how they walked away with the spoils, the riches of Egypt. Having never wielded a weapon. He speaks of how God parted the waters to lead his people to freedom and then drowned the mighty Egyptian army in those same waters. And he speaks of Israel's insufferable complaining as God brought them through the desert to Mount Sinai. Complaining that persisted even though God provided them bread from heaven and water flowing in abundance from rocks in the desert. He speaks of how easily God's people forgot all that they had just seen their God do. How even as God was presenting the law to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, a mountain covered in smoke and fire, a mountain that had quaked violently because of the presence of the living God, even while Moses was up there receiving the commandments, the Israelites were creating an idol of their own making to worship in place of the God who had so marvelously delivered them. All of this is preamble to the law itself. All of it demonstrates man's stiff-necked, stubborn rebelliousness at the same time that it demonstrates God's undistracted resolve to create a people who would be His, made worthy by Him alone. Everything prior to the law points to man's abject failure to be holy as God is holy, and therefore man's abject failure to to uh, comply with that which God is about to show them he requires. And then we get to the law itself. And our guilt, which has manifested itself in every generation prior to the law, is now manifested in the law. The law which reminds men of their very same helpless dependence that has been borne out in all that was recorded about them before this point. The law provides God's instructions regarding a tabernacle, an earthly representation of a heavenly reality, a picture of the glory of God dwelling in the midst of his people, a place in which his people could draw near to him, to meet with him. Everything about the tabernacle spoke of the transcendent holiness of God as the one who was set apart from everything common in Israel's experience. Everything from the precious metals and the priceless linens that adorned the tabernacle to the angelic beings embroidered upon its curtains to the Shekinah glory of God upon which even the high priest on the Day of Atonement could not directly look without dying. The glory from whom fire came forth in Leviticus 9 to ignite the flame of the altar and from whom the same holy fire came forth in the next chapter to consume Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, when they defiled his holy dwelling place with strange fire that did not come from him. All of this declared to God's people that he was and is entirely other than they are. That he is holy and they are not. The veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and the smoke from the incense that obscured the high priest's view of the Shekinah glory of God on the one day each year that he was permitted to enter into that veil, spoke of the unapproachable holiness of God and of the uncleanness of God's people, even of the one who served as the high priest. The priests themselves, whom God appointed to serve as mediators between him And his people reminded the nation that only those who were consecrated to God, set apart to him, could approach his holy presence. And the requirement that even the high priest present a sin offering to God for his own iniquity, which was, by the way, the first sin offering presented, made it clear to the people that that, that none of them, not even those most closely associated with the tabernacle worship, could stand before God on their own merits. All of this was shadow, not substance. 
But all of it served to show God's people in the most tangible of terms that they are not like God. And the sacrifices powerfully reinforced that same awareness to anyone who was paying attention. The requirement of sin and guilt offerings to address the sins of the people for all manner of actions, indeed, even for conditions over which they had no control, served as a constant reminder that they were not clean in the eyes of God. The continual burnt offering, which according to Exodus, ascended day and night in fire and smoke on the bronze altar at the entrance to the tabernacle compound, served as a constant reminder to the people that unless God provided an atoning sacrifice for their sin, they could not draw near to his presence. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews affirmed in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, when he says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, the substance, can never, by those same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleaned would have no conscience, no consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. I'll say that again. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In Leviticus 17.11, God gave instruction to Israel to explain why they could not consume the blood of of an animal when they ate the animal. And he said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I, and this is an emphatic I in the Hebrew, I, even I, have given it to you. You got that? I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Israel treated the sacrifices as some sort of an appeasement that they were giving to God. But God made it crystal clear that Israel wasn't giving anything to him. Just as he had, we read that by the way this morning, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We don't give anything to him. Just as he had provided the first sacrifice to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, so also He was the one providing a covering for the sins of Israel through the sacrifices enumerated in the law so that he could continue to dwell in their midst and they could draw near to his presence. But those sacrifices were the shadow, not the substance. They foreshadowed the one true sacrifice that God would provide to pay for sin for all time. So the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices, indeed everything in the law, served to further indict God's people and all mankind. The law did not resolve our guilt. The law memorialized our guilt for all generations. It reminded God's people daily and constantly through many vivid, tangible reminders Reminders they could see and touch and feel and smell and taste. That they were not holy, that they were utterly dependent upon God to provide a way of access to draw near to Him and to provide a covering for their sin. So we see that our guilt was sealed at the fall. Our guilt was demonstrated prior to the law from Adam to Moses. Our guilt is presented in the law. And our guilt is magnified by the law. The law doesn't just remind us of our sin. It actually magnifies our guilt. In Romans 7, Paul makes... We just read it. uh, Rick read it just a little bit ago. Paul makes some fairly surprising statements about the impact of the knowledge of God's law on us because of our sin. This is quite a passage. (laughs) What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. He says, I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every 
kind. Whatever I didn't covet before, I covet now because the law told me not to covet. He says this commandment that was to result in life proved to result in death for me. Because sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through the commandment it killed me. And then he makes very clear that he's not saying that there's a problem with the law. He says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which was good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Second time he says that. Rather, it was sin. It was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Now, what he says here is, it's amazing, but it's foundational to our understanding of God's purpose for the law. Ever seen one of those? It's a wet paint sign, uh, and this is what I call the wet paint syndrome. If you don't know the wall is covered with wet paint, you walk by it and you pay no attention. But because the sign is there, what are you tempted to do? Especially when it's bright red like that. Knowing that something is prohibited makes us want to do it all the more. And, of course, some people aren't satisfied just to touch the paint. They want to rearrange the sign. (laughs) If you say to your 14-year-old daredevil son, you can use your new rollerblades on this street and the next street, but there's a really big hill a couple of streets over. It's real steep. It's way too dangerous for rollerblades. You definitely can't go there. What's the first thing he wants to do? If he didn't know about the hill, the hill wouldn't bother. But because you told him about it and told him he can't go over there, it drives him crazy to even think about it. There was an interesting statement in Ken Burns' excellent documentary about the Prohibition era in the United States. The statement was, if you really want your kids to brush their teeth, make toothbrushing illegal. In Romans 7, verse 10, Paul says, This commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. The response of my sin to the commandment against coveting produced in me coveting of every kind. And Paul's conclusion at the end of this section gets right to the heart of the matter. Because our sin responds to the perfect, holy, and righteous law of God by sinning all the more, the law proves our sin to be utterly sinful. The law magnifies our guilt before God because our response to that which God has graciously revealed to us to show us His character provokes in us a greater violation of His character. So our sin is utterly sinful. The law magnifies our guilt. After the giving of the law, uh, well, first, at the giving of the law, Israel vowed to obey it. The leaders of Israel, the elders, they met with, they met up on the mountain and they said, we'll do it. We are, we're in this. Both feet, we're in this. After The conquest of the land, they they reiterated that vow. Now I want to look at two passages real quickly. Deuteronomy 31.20, when the second generation of Israel gets the law restated, just before they cross the Jordan to come into the land of promise, God says to them, When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, And when they have eaten and are satisfied and have become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will spurn me and break my covenant. This is a preview that God gives his people. After they had taken possession of the land, by God's mighty intervention and conquered cities fortified to the heavens, this nation of shepherds, The people vowed once again to serve the Lord and to keep His law. 
But Joshua told them they would not be able to keep that vow. He said to the people, you will not be able to serve Yahweh for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. (laughs) The people said, oh, no, Joshua, we will. You've got this wrong. We will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, okay, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have vowed to serve Yahweh your God. And they said, yeah, we're witnesses. And God held them to that. Just as he holds us to the standard of his perfect character. All right. Our guilt was sealed at the fall. It was demonstrated from Adam to Moses. It was presented in the law. It was magnified by the law. It was foretold after the law. And our guilt is confirmed in every bit of what God records in his word, including in the New Testament. In Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, Paul says, things that should shake anybody up who hasn't reckoned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, and by the way, this is his conclusion of a section from chapters about 119 all the way through chapter 3 in which he is explaining uh, the condemnation that we all incur because of the standard of God's righteousness. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, he says, What then? Are we Jews better than they, Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. And then he goes to the Old Testament. And he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And at the end of it, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what's changed since God declared before the flood, every thought, every intention of man's heart is only evil continually? And the answer is nothing has changed. Romans 3.23, the good Awana verse, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The only standard that exists. If the positive purpose of the law is to show us the character of God, then the negative purpose, which is still an exceedingly gracious purpose, is to show us our character in light of His. To show us that we are helplessly, desperately unholy. God's holiness reflected in His law does the very same thing that God's holy presence did in the garden after the fall of Adam and Eve. It lays us bare before God and reveals our hearts to be desperately wicked. The revelation of God's law leaves every mouth closed and every man accountable to God. Now, this is where a great many people refuse to enter by the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And they end up on the broad way that leads to destruction. Many are flatly unwilling to agree with what God says, to acknowledge that neither they nor anyone else except Jesus Christ has ever measured up to the standard of righteousness required by God. There is none righteous, not even one among us. If you are unwilling to accept the truthfulness of this indictment from God, then you cannot be saved until you are willing. And anyone who preaches a a gospel that does not agree with God's declaration regarding the universal condemnation of mankind is a false prophet preaching a false gospel no matter how sweet everything else he says sounds. And you can find them all over the place. If you go into the multitude, many of the churches 
that today call themselves Christian and you declare this to be true, you say everybody here stands condemned apart from Christ and deserves only eternal the fire of hell, they will politely or impolitely escort you out the door. Romans 3, verses 19 and 20 make it very clear. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was introduced to show us that we are condemned. All right, so the law condemns us just as does everything that came before the law. But once we realize that we're condemned, doesn't that awareness make us ready to be good law keepers now that we've been humbled? Once again, God says no. The law will never make men righteous. Galatians 3, Rick read a minute ago, a few minutes ago. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up. It has hemmed in all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I love that. Romans 3 says that God has shut our mouths. And this passage says He has shut us up under sin. So He's shut us up in a couple of ways. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become, and this is my translation of the word, our nanny, until Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under an, under an Annie. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I'll get to that nanny thing in a second. It is not possible for the law to impart life to sinful, spiritually dead men. If it were, righteousness would be based on law. Because that's the way we're bent anyway, right? We love to keep law. But it doesn't work that way. Dead men don't have anything to offer. Righteousness comes to us only by the promise of God who swore by Himself to raise up a seed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to make us joint heirs with that seed by faith. Law doesn't make us righteous because it cannot make us righteous. What it does instead is it hems us all in under sin. So why the law? Why would God make a covenant with men that required our compliance with the rule of life that he knew we couldn't fulfill? Let's say you're on a ship, and I know this illustration is full of holes, but there's a point. You're on a ship, you come across a man swimming away from a sinking vessel, and he's a thousand miles from the nearest land. You throw out a life preserver on a rope, and you yell for him to grab it. But he smiles and yells back that he's fine. He says he's a great swimmer and the land is only a few hundred feet away. Is it cruel or is it merciful for you to point out to him that he's wrong? That unless someone intervenes to save him, he is dead because he is incapable of swimming a thousand miles. This is where the law comes in. The law is our nanny until Christ. Now, some translations render this as tutor, but that doesn't capture the meaning. The Greek word is talking about a known role in the Greek and Roman cultures. A trusted servant of a child's father, appointed by the father to act as a custodian or a watchdog of sorts over the child with regard to the child's schooling and behavior. In well-to-do families in Greece and in the Roman culture, this trusted servant would escort the child to and from classes and would see to it that he did his studies and stayed out of trouble. 
Now, some take this nanny idea and they say that the purpose of the law was to keep us on the straight and narrow in some sort of partial, imperfect way until in the progress of revelation enough became known about Jesus Christ for men to properly trust in him. And then their righteousness would go from being imperfect to being perfect. I don't think that's what it's talking about. If we look at what the passage says... In verses 21 and 22, Paul says forcefully, the law cannot impart life or righteousness to us. Not a little, not a lot, not at all. He says law has enclosed us all under sin so that we will be moved by by God, by God's doing, from works that cannot save to faith that does. It is in pointing out this desperate need, our utter dependence upon God's provision of a Savior, that the purpose of the law then becomes fulfilled. It's our nanny because it shows us our lostness so that we will come to faith. And once we have come to faith, we don't need a nanny anymore. We saw last week that God is not concerned with external righteousness. He does not care if a man is circumcised in his flesh but not in his heart. He says you can be circumcised in your heart indeed without being circumcised in the flesh. He doesn't care if a man brings sacrifices and doesn't have a humble and contrite heart that reflects who he is. We saw last week, reflects his righteousness, I should say. We saw last week that the law is not about rule-keeping. It's about knowing God and loving Him and then loving our neighbor as ourself because of the love that He has shown to us. So if all that's true, how does God's law get fulfilled? How do we get circumcised hearts, hearts that love God by nature and obey Him by loving others from the inside out? How do we come to meet God's standard of righteousness if rule-keeping will not get us there? And the answer, as you know, is that God's law is fulfilled in Christ and in Him alone. In Matthew 5.17, we read it a minute ago, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And He meant that exactly as He said it. He came to fulfill the law. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law of God. He is the one. He is the only one. He is the only law keeper. In Romans 3, as we saw earlier, Paul serves up God's indictment of all mankind as helplessly lost, saying there is none righteous. There is none good. There is not even one who seeks after God as he must be sought. He says the law leaves every mouth closed and every man accountable to God. He says by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then he immediately says this. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. I love that, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. (laughs) The law itself and the prophets who came after the law all said the same thing about our ability to keep law. They said we can't. They all said the same thing about how the law would be fulfilled. That it's fulfilled in Christ. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. By a law of faith. 
For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law by faith? Through faith may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. All right, a lot of words. Our holy and righteous judge, whose character we violate by our fallen natures, has become our justifier. The just judge is the one who justifies us. And who is it that receives this gift of justification, of righteousness in the eyes of God? It is the one who has faith in his son. We are helpless to do anything about the infinite gap that separates us from God because he's holy and we're unholy. But what is not possible with men is possible with God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf in our place that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, here's one of the most critical truths men will ever know. If God doesn't do it all, it doesn't get done. In Deuteronomy 30, we looked at this a minute ago. This is the conclusion of three chapters about the curses, the blessings and the curses of the law of Moses. And God tells his people they're going to they're going to sin grievously and they're going to be under the curse and they're going to be taken away into captivity, pulled out of the land. And he says there's going to come a time when they will return. And look at this look at what this says. When you return to the Lord your God and heed his voice with all your heart and soul according to all that I am commanding you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now look at the rest of this passage. How does Israel come to turn? God tells him in verse 6. The Lord your God... Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And then he repeats the declaration that the time will come when they will turn. You shall return and heed the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I am doing, which I'm commanding you today. How will Israel turn? God will turn them. Jeremiah 31.18, which happens to be the passage in which the new covenant is revealed. Before that covenant is presented, Ephraim, which represents Israel, cries out to God, having suffered the judgment, the hand of judgment against, it, against the nation. Ephraim cries out and says to God, You have chastised me, and I was chastised as a calf unaccustomed to the yoke. And then Ephraim says to God, You turn me and I shall be turned. For you are Yahweh, my God. Jesus Christ didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to save those he came to save. He didn't come to save those who sought him because his word tells us in no uncertain terms that there is none who seeks him. Not even one. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. If there is one overwhelming lesson in the Mosaic Covenant and in all of the covenants, it is that unless God does it all, it does not get done. Our righteousness is His doing (laughs) and it's His righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and redemption and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
And that brings us to the last point I wanted to make, and wow, we're actually on time. (laughs) There is a major plot twist with regard to the Mosaic Covenant. The one great bilateral covenant turns out not to be bilateral at all. Because God, the covenant maker, fulfills it himself. If he had not, it would not have been fulfilled. All four of the major covenants in the Bible end up being promises that God makes to create a people for his own possession and to make that people worthy of his presence. Beloved, let us boast together always and only in the Lord. Our Father, we we come to you humbled by your word. Humbled by all that it reveals to us from cover to cover. Made aware by your repeated, emphatic, and clear declaration that you are holy and we are not. And yet you have shown us, Father, that through Jesus Christ and him alone, you make us righteous in your eyes. And it's not our righteousness, it's his. What an amazing reality for us who believed, who believed in Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior, that we stand clothed in his righteousness and that that's what you see when you look at us. You see him. Father, if any are here and they're depending on their own goodness, May your word pierce their hearts and show them that they are not good. That they do not meet your standard. And that the gap between your character and theirs is infinite. Make them see that only you can bridge that gap and you have done it in Christ alone. For us who belong to you, Lord, by faith. Make us your ambassadors. Use us as your mouthpieces to loudly declare this truth. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.